Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're going to talk about an incredibly insane week in the world of politics with my friend, the Chronicle's editorial page editor, John Diaz. We start with the revelations in the Bob Woodward book that President Trump intentionally misled Americans about the pandemic. We know that's horrific. But does that change the course of the race 55 days out from Election Day? We also talk about climate change. More than 3 million acres of California have burned and continue to burn, and the skies are black. But the candidates aren't even talking about climate change. Why not? And finally, John gives a really insightful peek behind the curtain at the Chronicle's editorial board and how deliberations have changed in the Zoom era. And now, from his home in Alameda to mine in Oakland, here's my Zoom conversation with John Diaz. John Diaz, welcome back to It's All Political. I, uh, for, I think you are now uh, taking the, retaking the lead as the most uh, frequent guest on the podcast, taking it from Stacey Abrams and Adam Schiff, although Schiff is coming back on the podcast next week. So, Joe, it's always a pleasure, and it seems like we always have something interesting to talk about. Oh my God! And this week, where do we begin? Let, let's let's start with the Woodward book. Um, this this week, we learned uh, officially in the president's own words that he intentionally misled uh, the American people about the extent of the pandemic. Uh, we you know we've heard this uh, you know over the you know reported through many sources. The president said it himself uh, on tape to Woodward, and then he confirmed it later. Two questions for you. What does this mean in the broad scheme of things? Uh, and what does this mean in a political sense with 55 days to go before Election Day? Well, Joe, in the very short term, it means that we're no longer talking about the Atlantic story, which had some revelations that were dominating last week. Um, I don't know that this really changes the dynamic of the election uh, necessarily, because in fact, you have a really good piece in the Chronicle about that that at this point, it seems like the the lines are so clearly drawn between the Trump supporters and the non-Trump supporters. But what it does is to the extent that there may be movement, uh, it kind of freezes the race in, in that situation because you, you have, you, you basically have Trump on the defensive where he's talking about something that is not his narrative. And, and so I think in that sense, it helps Joe Biden, but I have to say, Joe, I've underestimated uh, President Trump at every step of the way and uh, overestimated the, the ability of the Americans to to look at the facts and, and, and question him. Uh, so I, I don't know that it necessarily changes things, but certainly not good for him. Let's put it that way. I <clears throat> received an email. I think you, you might have been copying on one of these uh, from a reader. It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you are not pointing out that the president that you know it, it could have cost millions and millions or, or millions tens of thousands of lives by not talking about this earlier and predicting but i mean those voters i mean yes that's that's one thing but those voters as you say they left the president months ago they they ditched him months ago because they realized that and don't don't you think joe <laughs> just in, in terms of the general narrative that that most americans whether they accept it or not uh, realized that that President Trump had been downplaying the the virus. I mean, certainly 
it looks a lot different now than it did in, in February. And it's certainly, I don't think it's vindicated him in any way. And uh, I, I always turn to you for ethical decisions like this. Bob Woodward, I, I got some heat from someone just the other day saying, well, why did Woodward wait on, if he knew this information back in March, essentially, why did he wait to publish it? Is he, is he doing a disservice to the American people, to the world, by not publishing this uh, as soon as he got this? If you or I had gotten this, we were like, holy shit, I, you know, I got to publish this right away. Were his the commercial considerations uh, foremost in his mind, or, or what's your take on the ethics of holding off on this? Well, I love this question, Joe, because it's the naval gazing issue of the day in the journalism world. <laughs> yes, uh, it is, you know. Well, you know, a couple points of context. One is this is not unusual for uh, big national writers from the New York Times or Washington Post to come out with a book that have has revelations that people might be saying, well, why why wasn't this in the newspaper months ago or a year ago? Uh, we, we've seen this with things like domestic surveillance, certainly James Risen, who had a case with a leaked source, um, you know, came, it was from his book, not from his, his reporting. I don't know that it necessarily would have made a difference uh, if, if the day after that interview, um, Bob Woodward, who I guess is no longer working full-time for the New York Times or for the Washington Post, but has a, a uh, title with them, whether the Post had come out with a story that Trump is saying something very different in public than he's saying in private. Um, I don't know that it would have made a difference, but it would have been nice to know. And, and at the same time, it would not have had the impact that it has now when we know that you know nearly 200,000 Americans have died. Uh, so we certainly know that not only was his uh, were his words deceptive, but the, the the disconnect between what he was saying publicly and privately probably cost lives because you you figure uh, almost certainly cost lives because you look at since that time when he made those comments, he was you know hectoring governors to open up. He was talking about opening up by Easter, and that was after. Uh, he had told Bob Woodward that this thing is in the air. We know it's far more lethal than the uh, regular flu. So I don't know that it would have made a difference. It would have been nice to know, though. Uh, but it probably would not have had the blockbuster impact that it has right now. Right. And, and of course, when the president talks about panic, uh, you know, we don't quite know whether he's talking about panic on the stock market or panic with the general population and people dying and running and, and, and hoarding and stuff like that. Um we, we're still not clear about what the panic would be. And, and by the way, his mind. how ironic for President Trump to say his motivation was to keep people calm, comparing mm-hmm. himself to yesterday at a, at a rally to Churchill on the roof during the, uh, the bombing of London. Um, isn't isn't panic uh, and, and fear uh, two of his driving uh, political weapons? I mean, this is the guy who came down the elevator at Trump Tower and warned us that you know, Mexicans were coming over the border who were rapists. And now uh, now he's talking about, you know, the su- thir- people are going to be invading the suburbs if, if Joe Biden is elected. Uh, I'm, Speaking I'm, of I'm that, glad at least for a moment in his presidency that he cared about calming, <laughs> calming down the public. But I wanted to let's bookmark the, the suburbs uh, exploding because that was, you know, uh, we haven't heard a lot about that lately. But I, just one last thing on, on books. Uh, I, I peeked at the Amazon top 25. We have like 
<clears throat> it's like it should be the the Trump book top twenty five. There's a half dozen titles there. We have the Michael Cohen book. We have the President's Sisters book. We have the Bolton book. The Melania's best friend or ex best friend book. Uh, we have the Washington Post reporter Phil Rucker and Carly Owning's book. We have uh, then we have you know uh, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders book uh, and so on and so on and so on. Like. I, are we, is this, oh, obviously these are dropped now and uh, for commercial purposes, but is it, is it reached a point of saturation? Do we, they, what, what more can we learn from these books and, and, or, or do they have a, a, a valuable service and a, uh, they serve a valuable service in a historical context point of view? Well, I'm not sure that uh, any of these books right now would have the, the wide angle perspective to really be, you know, historical context, but there's sure are a lot of salacious details in them, particularly the Mary Trump book, the Melania's ex-friend. Uh, Joe, it makes me think you and I should take a leave of absence and write a book <laughs> about Trump, any, any kind of book about Trump. And, uh, <laughs> and then, like we're the last two guys who haven't. Um, okay. Speaking of, uh, the one thing about the last couple of weeks with both the, um, the revelations in the Atlantic story about Trump's relationship with the military and veterans and wounded veterans, some, some horrific things he said there about the, uh, 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 according to the Atlantic about veterans, uh, that's kind of bumped off his previous uh, tact in this campaign, which was to basically to, and I'm going to use a, a political science term here, scare the crap out of Americans uh, by um, talking about how the, if Democrats win, they're going to invade the suburb, you know, uh, you know, crime and is going to invade the suburbs, basically uh, very thinly veiled racist terms. Um, there was polling that came out this week from Wisconsin that said that message is not resonating there. And that's the home of uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. There's been a lot of racial justice protests uh, where uh, uh, someone was shot by the police. What is the, um, uh, what is, is that message dead now or is that just derailed or was that just more spaghetti that Trump's throwing against the wall to try and see what, what can, what can take down Joe Biden? Well, I think it's the latter, Joe, and it's a really tough sell considering that most people in the suburbs are not feeling, in fact, even most people in, in urban areas are not necessarily feeling under siege right now. It's, you know, fairly, most of these protests are peaceful. The uh, vandalism and violence is as despicable as it is, is really pretty limited. So I don't think, I don't think people in Lafayette or Moraga or, or Mill Valley are really worried that somehow there, that there's going to be some kind of invasion of Antifa uh, into their neighborhood. So it's, it's really a tough sell. I think this election is really going to be driven by, and I, I don't think you can separate the two issues that the coronavirus and the economy. And and right now those are uh, trying mightily as he is to try and either change the subject or somehow rationalize that he's done everything he could. Um, people, th those are two issues that people really vote viscerally. I mean, they know, no matter what the president says about how the economy has bounced back, they see what's happening in their communities. They see what's happening in their families. They see what's happening in businesses. Uh, they're feeling under stress in terms of the coronavirus. I mean, we're making you know sacrifices every day, you know, patriotic gestures, depending on how you want to consider. You know, wearing a mask, not going to the gym, doing all the things that or the the, the theater, the things you know Americans are accustomed to doing. 
I think that is the, that is really the big hurdle for for President Trump. What I don't understand is still he gets high marks on the economy. He's the majority of Americans still in, in this Wisconsin poll, the Pennsylvania poll that, that recently came out, major battleground states. He's people still a majority, slim majority, still like the way he's doing in the economy. Is that are they are they, are they interpreting? what he could do, what he did do before the pandemic, or the, is that a look at the stock market? What's what's that all about? I think you nailed it, Joe. It's it's what, what he the potentially he could do and what he did do. Uh, I think there's probably a certain amount of nervousness about handing the economy to to Joe Biden, uh, considering, you know, the, the talk about he's going to raise your taxes, you know, the stock market's going to go down. I think those are working to a certain degree because if there's one thing the stock market doesn't like, but also I think, you know, Americans don't like in their in planning their family finances is uncertainty. And I don't know that certainty is necessarily a winning argument right now, considering the, the state of the economy with unemployment at, at really high levels. Um, but I think I think that's where it, it's not so much that there's a great deal of confidence in, in Donald Trump, but a little bit of trepidation about what the Biden administration would bring. We'll be back with more from John Diaz after this short break. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Diaz. This has been a crazy week for us here in California, and especially in Northern California. Um, it's it, the, the, the skies were orange. It looked like, you know, permanent midnight here. I was talking to family uh, back in Pittsburgh. This was Pittsburgh in the 1940s and 50s when, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, the, the soot filled the skies with the, from the steel mills and such. Um, and yet t- we have 2% of the nation's largest state has burned. Um, and yet very little conversation about climate change in this campaign. Why is that? Why are we not talking about climate change in this campaign? Why are we're talking about it, but why are the candidates not talking about it? Well, that's, that's a really good question, uh, Joe, because I think it is a winning, uh, winning argument for Biden Harris. If you look at the, uh, the evidence that I guess the, one of the problems and the reason that we're not hearing about it more is the places where it's clearly a winning issue, California, along the coast, it's burning, uh, certainly along the, the East Coast where they're, they're dealing with, you know, uh, hurricanes and, and other unusual weather. Um, that, that's pretty well locked in as, a, as an issue. Uh, but at the same time, it's not a 100% issue when you get to Pennsylvania or Ohio, areas that, uh, Texas, areas that, uh, are really tied in with the energy industry, whether it's fracking or, or oil drilling, uh, et cetera, that I think, or coal, certainly. Uh, so I think there's, um, it, it's not necessarily an issue that, that is going to help Joe Biden there. And let's not forget this election, uh, where we have 300 and something million Americans, it really comes down to just a handful of states. And in mm-hmm. a lot of those states, uh, uh, you know, energy is, is climate change is not top of mind. Um, I would like to spend our last couple of minutes here getting a behind the seat, uh, behind the curtains peek at what goes on in the ivory tower where you are at the editorial board. Um, for, for listeners who are not familiar with how this works, 
uh, candidates and and proponents and and opponents of ballot measures in uh, California, and this happens everywhere, uh, come to the editorial board uh, typically and and present their case in the editorial board, which John leads, uh, decide whether to endorse a particular candidate or um, or ballot measure. Uh, in, in addition to opining on various issues of the day. Um, so we were talking uh, the other day and you said, this is a really, uh, this is really weird because you're doing all of these, these are typically done in person, but now these are all done on zoom, like the rest of our lives. Um, what, how has that changed the dynamic, uh, of the, what goes on the editorial board? I've sat in on a couple of these last couple of weeks. How does it change the dynamic and, and how does that change how you deliberate about this stuff? What, what do you, you don't, you can't quite feel people sweat in front of you. Uh, what do you, how does it change? Or, or cry at Joe. <laughs> or cry. Real poor meeting. Like so many things of 2020, it is, it is different. It is bizarre to have uh, advocates of an issue uh, in that Hollywood squares a Zoom frame instead of uh, talking to them in person. Um, there, there's pros and cons. Um, one of the pros is we've been recording uh, the Zoom calls for, for most of these major issues, and we're going to put them up online when we come out with our voter guide. Uh, there will be a link to them. So voters who want to find more about uh, Proposition 14 or Proposition 16 and hear the arguments and hear the proponents and, and opponents um, uh, question, they'll get a chance to do it, which the thing I like about that, Joe, is it not only gives people a chance to get more information about the issues, but it gives them a chance to evaluate us. You know, have we been, been asking substantive questions? Have we been uh, equally fair to both sides? I will say this, though, as a precaution to, to those who may be uh, wanting to dive in. I hope, hope some of your listeners do and look at these Zoom meetings. My role tends to be... Um, devil's advocate at these meetings. And, and there's a good reason for it. Uh, a lot of times people will leave the meeting thinking, and they've told me afterwards that they thought that, uh, that, that I was clearly on the other side. But a lot of it is I'm testing my own arguments if I think I'm inclined to support something. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the one advantage of it too, uh, you, know, you do miss the interpersonal touch but let me put it this way, Joe, I've done this now 24 years. This is my seventh presidential uh, election. Sometimes it's hard for some of these really, you know, zealots, the true believers on these ballot measures for or against to actually get them out of the office. With Zoom, uh, it's pretty easy to end the meeting. <laughs> Just uh, click that red end the meeting for all button, which is kind of nice. I don't want to speak too much out of school here, but I do remember uh, two sen- or one Senate candidate, the U.S. Senate candidate from a few years ago, who uh, uh, the meeting ended and this Senate candidate continued talking for another 15 to 20 minutes, which rarely happens. It's not <laughs> common. Uh, but I think I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting feedback from, uh, from people who t- take a look at some of the Zoom calls. Um, I will say this, you know, certainly if you look at the, the ballot this year, there's a lot of of uh, especially on the state ballot, a lot of measures that are replays, you know, things that we've editorialized on the past, Prop 16, affirmative action, 14, stem cell, 21, rent control. Uh, But I think in each case, uh, and then there's some justice, criminal justice reform uh, measures that there's 
that are basically one is undoes some that have been passed over the recent years. But I think it's really important for us as an editorial board to take a fresh look, to, to give an honest assessment. I've, I've always thought, Joe, as important as the position that we come out with is the reason that the reasoning that we lay out that, that readers can agree or disagree with. Do you remember a time where you've changed your mind on an issue that's come back before you years later or not? I mean, in this case, affirmative action is coming back, what, 20, 26 years later. Um, what do you remember changing your mind on something over even the course over several years? Yeah, there, there have been uh, issues. I think that uh, I've, I've always thought it's important to 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 vote the, the details in the letter and not just the concept. I'll give you two that I think the way they played out, I had some regrets on. Uh, we supported the uh, Indian gaming measure. Uh, and I think if you look at the way that was distorted with, you know, reservation shopping and others, that that did not, that that, that became far more expansive than it was advertised as, as a ballot measure. Uh, another one that I thought, I certainly strongly support the concept of medical marijuana before we had recreational marijuana. I think that really became something other than strictly medical. Um, and, and the other side had warned on that. It turns out they were, they were correct. Um, but, and I think, I think a, a good editorial page has to be willing to change its mind from now and now and then as, as the facts change. You know, I, I kind of compare it, certainly not in terms of gravity, but in terms of uh, just approach to the Supreme Court decisions. Like the mm -hmm. Supreme Court, when they make a come out with a, a ruling, has to look at the precedent of what they said in the past. Doesn't mean that they can't change it, not just because of the composition of the court, but especially if circumstances have changed. And I, I think that's important for us too, that you know we don't want to suddenly you know just do a coin flip every morning as to you know, whether we're going to support the re-election of Donald Trump or not, but look at, you know, the facts and how they may have changed. And, uh, and, and I don't want to, you know, give you a, a, a back rub here on the podcast for no reason, but oh, go ahead, to... Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but, um, uh, I do want to give props to the editorial board under, under you where, uh, you've been very transparent, sort of leading the nation in, in, in terms of, uh, putting, putting, uh, transcripts out or putting um, video out there uh, and inviting reporters in. I think um, uh, one of our uh, competitors in California, the LA Times didn't do that until very recently, a few years ago. There was, it was much more the closed chamber thing. And, and, uh, and, and your editorial board has been very open about showing, you know, what the process is all about. And, and these Zoom meetings are another, another step in doing that. So on behalf of uh, transparency uh, everywhere, um, advocates everywhere. Thank you for doing that. Well, Joe, I think it's very important that when we, when we have those editorial board meetings, that one, that they're on the record, and two, that any reporter who has an interest and an expertise in that area is allowed in the room and allowed to ask questions. Because frankly, you know, whether it's you covering politics or some of our specialties on education or health or the environment, uh, they're going to know more about the issue. You're going to know more about the what, what a candidate has said on, on the stump than, than I will. And I think that's really uh, good to hold them accountable. Uh, as an editorial board, we don't want to protect anybody from, from uh, real scrutiny. 
And uh, do you care to one more? Uh, I don't, I, I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you care to talk about the one uh, major California political figure who all, all in, often asked to go off the record in the editorial board? <laughs> there, there, there's a few of them. Are you thinking of Senator Feinstein? I am thinking of Senator Feinstein, who likes to go off the record. She goes, can I go off the record here? And you're like, no, you can't. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think there's been an editorial board where she hasn't asked to go <laughs> off the record. And, but, but here's what I find, too. Um, very, very rarely will I let somebody go off the record. Because as I put it uh, to her and others, I sure wouldn't trust this group in the room. <laughs> To, uh, <laughs> to keep a secret. That's that we are not in the business to keep secrets. And also yes. the the very practical reason, just in terms of protecting uh, you know my own integrity, is let's say somebody does go off the record and then it shows up in the Chronicle, one of our other reporters who maybe wasn't in the room catches wind of it. The, the suspicion is going to be that somehow I broke that confidence. And I, th- I think it's easier to just keep it all on the record. All right. Just like John, all, it's all political. It's always on the record. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We'll leave with that plug. We'll leave with the plug. <laughs> thank you for coming back. It's good to see you. By the way, I, you must kill on, I'm looking at, we're doing this uh, via video on Zoom. You you must kill on Room Raider. You have an excellent setup. I'm 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 in my my daughter's, ex, my, my, my former, my daughter's former bedroom right now and uh, that we've converted into my office. And you have, but you have a beautiful array of books and 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 sports bobbleheads and some awards. My God, it looks very clean and neat. And wow, you must get ten out of ten on Room Raider. Well, all all your listeners who go on our uh, voter guide to see our interviews will be able to see it. But but Joe, you win best dress for this morning with that Dub Nation T-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I really got dressed up for this <laughs> black T-shirt. Yes, that's that's the joys of working from home. Okay. John Diaz, thank you for being on It's All Political once again. Always enjoy it. Thanks, Joe. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe. I'd like to thank John Diaz for joining me today and making me feel bad about how crappy my room background looks. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing this episode. And a shout out to the creators of our fabulous theme music. That song is Cattle Call, and it's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter if you've written a book about Donald Trump or not, it's all political. <laughs>